Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I am your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's guests are Ash and Raphael, who are a father-son duo who join me to speak about Ash's questioning of his gender, but also an underlying condition that isn't diagnosed until his mid-teens, being autism. And once he stumbles upon this autistic diagnosis or this diagnosis of autism, he begins to incorporate several different protocols and coping mechanisms that really help him get ahead of the problems that he's been experiencing up till then, social problems and stuff of that nature. So I thought we're going to talk about his wrangling with gender and his questioning of gender and his uh, playing with the trans identity. But it turns out there's this whole other conversation that I was not aware we were going to have. And I learned so much. I am so lucky to be able to do this work and to continually speak with wonderful individuals with a wide variety of experiences that I don't have myself. So if you are interested in listening to a teen dealing with gender, or if you're interested in listening to a teen dealing with autism, or if you're interested in an interview with a father and a son speaking about these issues, have I got a treat for you? Let's get to business. Here is Ash and Raphael. So what's the game plan? How do you guys want to uh, venture forth into this exploration of uh, things? Uh, should we start at the beginning or at the end, Ash? Um, well, that, that's a hard question because the the way things there's there's how things happened and that chronology, and there's the chronology how of how we figured out what actually happened. Hmm. You know what? I think it might be fun to start in the middle. In the where's the, there's so much middle though. There is though, but the, I think in a way the middle is really for most children who are consumed with the belief that they're transgender, the moment at which they tell their parents. So like ninth grade. That they are convinced they have and have, they are and have always been transgender. Yeah. So for you, that would be ninth grade. Yeah. And I, I consider that the middle. Okay, I, I, I'm comfortable calling that the middle. Uh, Ash busted in on us. Uh, Mom, Dad, there's something oh, I want to no, share with you. No, no, I don't. And I won't go into the specifics. I wrote a song. No, and it was a terrible song. Oh my God! Sat down at the piano okay, that, and sang to us huh. about how he was and always had been really a girl inside. <laughs> okay, so Ash, was it? Was it a belief that you were a girl or was it belief that you were transgender? Was there a distinction in that consciousness? Uh, it was. I wasn't so attached to um, the the girl aspect, but I was very attached to the idea that I was not a, a boy or, or a man specifically. 
So that's the middle. And I think that's a great place to start because from the perspective of the transgender child, that middle determines what happened previously because almost every transgender child by that point has rewritten their personal history to support their current perception that they are not the sex that they are. So Ash, of course, had gone back to his early childhood and rewritten his entire personal experience in such a way as to support the idea that he wasn't actually a man inside. Is that fair? No, I don't think that is fair. I, I think that it was, I didn't rewrite anything. I didn't make anything up. I just recontextualized it. And what what prompted this looking back uh, was it a feeling? Was it something that you saw uh, in the media that started to help you make sense of feelings of confusion or something like that? Well, um, I suppose from... I, I can't quite tell you w when I first, you know, encountered the idea of, of you know, a transgender people. Um, but, you know, I growing up, I, I had, you know, examples in the media... Or, you know, people I, I happened upon. We have a personal friend who we went to college with yeah. who is transgender, who you met when you were a small child. Yes. So I, I think it was always, you know, sort of like there. I, I was aware of the concept. I think that in ninth grade, um, you know, I, well, all my life, really, I've, I've felt sort of a sense of, of not belonging with, with, Boys and people in general. Um, people in general and boys in specific. Yeah. How's that? Yeah, that, that's that's accurate. Um, and so I I I spent I I labored away at trying to figure out what the heck was happening, why that was, why I couldn't seem to hold friendships or you know have good friendships at all. And because you know I, I looked around and I saw other people having friendships. And I never understood what the difference between me and them was. And, you know, I, I cycled through, you know, multiple explanations. And in ninth grade, it was, I'm trans, was, was the explanation uh, there. Hmm. Um, would, would being a girl, how would being a girl in a boy's body, if that's the correct uh, frame of reference, help you be closer to people or help you understand why you're not close to your peers because then i could be friends with girls and not have them develop a crush on me and oh, then okay be manipulative and then spread rumors behind my back which has happened again and again and again and again so and it's, again it, it's complicated and again uh -huh. I, I love the idea of not going sequentially because uh looking back from the perspective of the grand announcement he, Ash, did indeed have a lot of trouble forming friendships with boys. Ash did not like rough-and-tumble play. He did not like that sort of thing. Uh, he had mannerisms which were, you know, atypical. The way he dressed was atypical. And when he went to public school, he was bullied quite a lot yes. because of his atypical behavior and the way that he dressed and his interests. And some of the things that the boys would say is they would insult him by calling him a girl 
or a faggot, uh, which insults, of course, he received on an almost daily basis. Yes, yes. And he, at that point, decided that it was really not much fun to hang out with boys. He would rather hang out with girls because they didn't call him a girl or a faggot. And so he tried very hard by the time he got to ninth grade to have a group of friends that was predominantly girls. And that worked great for four months. Four months. Four months. It worked great. Worked really great for four months. Four months. Four glorious, idyllic months. I was I, I I I was immersed in the glory. I was just rolling in it. You had so I, many friends. I was, was so I was so happy. I like that was like the happiest really I'd been to mm-hmm. uh, been at, at that point in my life. And then, you know, all of a sudden, you know, they they stopped being friends with me, and people stopped talking to me, and I was like, what did I do? And they're all like, you know what you did. The wheels came off in a massive and orchestrated social shunning, and this was precipitated by a friend of his uh, making a physical pass at him yes. in a study hall. Yes. What uh, What grade are we in now? Ninth grade. Ninth. Yes. Okay. So everybody's 14, 15. Yes. About, I think that's yeah. how it works. Yeah, 14. I and so that. Ash went into a complete tailspin. Yeah, I had a psychotic break, which is the the proper word for it. So I started having um, halluc- a visual, audiovisual hallucinations. Ash started cutting himself. Oh no, I had been doing that since middle school. I started again. I relapsed. That's the word. For yeah. That. Can we and, just briefly um, touch on that? Uh, what what was the impetus to start cutting yourself earlier? Uh, yeah. So in middle school. Um, I felt really, really lonely and hopeless and depressed because I didn't really have any good friends. Um, People were mean to me on a daily basis. Um, I was having trouble in school. My grades were not good. And the, the thing is that I like I would get like an A every once in a while. Like I got an A in in English. And I was like, I can do the work. But why can't Why can't I do the work if I can do the work? And um, be, because you know, I I would be sitting in like math class, and like I I'd understand everything, but then I it, it, it would be so boring to me, and then I wouldn't do my homework, and that was like how it was in, in almost every class, and I saw no way out of it, and cutting was just a way to transfer that pain from my mind to my body. Okay. To, to kind of specify it as and localize it there and then participate in it kind of, uh, instead of having it come everywhere inside and out, like here it is. It's a nice little package. And then the, when you started again, it was from the same, uh, impetus and the same kind of thinking yeah it it was very similar um i think that it it was definitely um there was also a bit um inside me i i really hate to say this but i think there was a part in me in ninth grade which sort of romanticized it um just as a product of what was in the media at that time 
and um, my experience in, in middle school because I saw this great drama because I wasn't the only person cutting myself. I got the idea from somebody else because at, you know, this, I went to this large, you know, pressure cooker type school and uh, in middle school. And so everybody, many, many people had, had, um, you know, mental health problems of, of varying types. And what I'm detecting here that uh, I just uh, would like clarification on, what is the role of the internet in uh, you know, helping you cogitate and think through this stuff? Yeah, so the, the internet was very simultaneously very helpful and very detrimental. Um, so the the internet is, I remember in... Um, you know, seventh grade, you know, I, or, you know, most of my life I've grown up around computers. I've, I've had access to the internet, you know, I've played video games and stuff. And so, you know, I'm, I'm very, very used to that sort of thing. And in seventh grade, um, I, I started doing research and, you know, looking up things like, why do I have trouble with social situations or why do I have trouble getting my work done? Things like that. And, you know, I came upon, you know, the ideas of attention deficit disorder and, and autism and stuff. And, you know, I sort of came up with the very strong belief that, Hey, this really makes sense and explains what's going on here. Um, but there was uncertainty to it, uh, because I didn't have a diagnosis in middle school and, just despite you know seemingly understanding this it wasn't helping so i i went further on and um i started watching in, in ninth grade a few uh like trans youtubers um and you know watching people transition and what estrogen does and, and i read about it um and I, I think it's important to note that nowhere on, you know, official, um, you know, websites of medical centers or, or whatnot did it say anything about the negative effects of estrogen, um, which, which I thought was very misleading. Something I did not do is that I did not spend time on, like, Tumblr or Reddit or social media platforms besides YouTube talking to people because that scared me and overwhelmed me quite a lot. Huh. Uh, well, it, it's kind of fascinating that you took an academic approach uh, to... Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so we're going to jump forward again, our forward and back dance. Uh, Ash was later diagnosed as autistic. Yeah, it, I was first it, diagnosed with ADD and then autism two years later. But okay. it was actually, I think, the third time we had suggested to someone that in testing him... They consider the idea that he might be autistic. And this time, the third time was the charm. Ash suggested to us that we go at it again with this specific idea. And we sought out a specialist. And here's the point where we share something that might be of public utility. If a child is a high-functioning autistic, and really is capable of doing just about everything at an above average level, almost nobody will diagnose that child as autistic. 
almost nobody. It really does take a specialist. And this specialist was able to say, so of all of these scores, your lowest score is 75%. And that would be great, except all of your other scores are 99%. And this is a problem. This points us to an issue. And there were a number of other very specific tests that were run to show the fashion in which his brain works in decoding information and displaying information. And this specialist was able to diagnose Ash as autistic. And that self-knowledge has helped Ash quite a lot and also helps in retrospectively interpreting all of the difficulties Ash had as a child and with school, although those autism as a source of these problems was not apparent to us at the time. So if could we could you help me understand what autism would be then? Is it a some sort of uh, like if you're creating a Dungeons and Dragons character, there's a it's an imbalance of stats. There's one. No, no. no. Let, me, let me explain this as the autistic person. Um, <laughs> so autism is, is not about like your quantitative abilities. It is a qualitatively sort of different way of approaching things, um, which is something that's quite hard to explain. Um, so, Shall I talk about the drawing test? Yeah, talk about the drawing test. Let me explain one of the tests that the specialist did that no other person did. He put down a piece of paper in front of Ash, which was a very complex figure. And he said to Ash, now, you're going to reproduce this complex figure on this other piece of paper, except that you're going to use colored pencils, and every couple minutes, someone is going to come in, take away your pencil, and give you a different color. And what that shows is the the sequence in which this image is processed. And he showed us Ash's product and said, now the way that a, a neurotypical person would do this is a neurotypical person would look at the gestalt of this picture, figure out what he can interpret of this, what the easiest design is. There is a big square. Okay, we start with the big square. It kind of looks like a house. Okay, make it look kind of like a house. And proceed from there, from the general strokes, down to the details. The way that an autistic person does it is nothing like that. And when we saw Ash's drawing, it was composed of, I think, six? Six different colors? Yes. Six different colors, each of which was tiled. So that the exact same amount of the drawing had been copied in each color in sequence. Top left, top middle, top right, bottom left, bottom left, bottom right. And the doctor said, somebody who is not autistic simply doesn't do this. <laughs> and does, how does that, how does that um, interpret to interpreting social data? Yeah. Or yes. So, understanding the person as a whole or what? So for, for me, the way, the way, the information, so we know it's general knowledge that, that autistic people are very bad at interpreting nonverbal cues and communication and, and tone of voice and that sort of thing. Um, but there are many autistic people, myself included, who sort of develop 
um, compensatory social skills. And what that looks like for me um, is I've read a lot of, on the internet about body language and, and stuff. So I can meet a person and then within the first few days and, or weeks of knowing them, I will get like a mental D&D character sheet of all their traits and how they respond to specific things. <laughs> and that stays the same the whole time I know them because I cannot pick up on any more nonverbal cues. Let, let me explain in a different fashion. When... Uh, a, a neurotypical or holistic, as we call them, person meets a new person. They see this person in a holistic fashion. I meet the person. I'm looking at the way they walk. I'm looking at the way they stand. I'm looking at the way their face moves. I'm looking at where their eyes move. I'm looking at their complexion. I'm looking at their height. I'm listening to the timbre of their voice. I'm listening to the rhythm of their voice. All of these different kinds of signals are being interpreted at once. And I'm trying to focus in on what seems the most salient to me. As in the picture, an autistic person is likely to focus sequentially on one thing at a time. And sometimes this focus can be quite intense and exclude all of the other information, some of which might be very important. I know that Ash uh, was able to deduce that a young lady was interested in him. I have done this many times by noticing as per as per the script that this young lady was playing with her hair and so he approaches uh perceiving people in a very cognitive fashion a very uh sort of checklist fashion you know playing with hair check must be attracted to me yeah like a flow chart everything's a flow chart yeah yeah okay. it's more complicated than just that one thing but <laughs> this yeah. is an example i i think from my understanding, most holistic people sort of approach social uh, situations in a very intuitive manner. Yes. It just sort of happens. With me, I have to think consciously about every single thing that is happening. Okay. And I, I have to have a system to do it, or else I either freak out <laughs> or don't. don't social. And Ash is, with a therapist who is helping him, a great deal with learning how to interact with people who are not autistic. Yes. I think one of the things, and I'm always fascinated because as a parent and as a non-autistic person, I would not notice many of the gaps or misunderstandings that Ash has. Uh, only his therapist will really notice these things. For instance, I thought one of the things that your therapist said uh, the other week that was fascinating was he taught you about the, what did you call it? The plus? Oh, yeah, match plus one. Match plus one. Huh. And this is something no no holistic person would ever have so, reason to know so, about unless they were a therapist. So what it is is that when you're, like, talking to somebody or, like, first meeting them, you tell them some information. And then if they tell you some information, like, tell them an equivalent amount of information but a little bit more. And they should do the same. And if they don't do the same, then they don't want to talk to you. Or there's something else going on there. But if they do, you can continue doing it, which is completely in contrast to to my previous technique, which I have been doing basically up until like the past month, which is meeting people, doing a stand-up comedy rendition of my life story, and then hoping they like me. Oh, okay. So you can see that as we described this, you would have no reason, Benjamin, to ever have heard of match plus because you were doing this naturally by the time you were five years old hmm. as was i but ash was unaware that this is how people actually interchange you okay. you you 
you reach out, you get a little bit of a response, you respond a little more, they respond a little more. This is how we accumulate some kind of connection. And Ash, just with that example, and I would like us to return to ninth grade, but with the um, with this new Match Plus uh, protocol, is it? Um, are you are you relaxing into it? Is it more stress, or are you able to adapt to it? Because that seems like you're doing all this processing all the time in the front or in your cognition that I don't have to worry about it's happening in the background. So I wonder if this, this method is easier than having uh, your previous method in place. I think it is harder, but due to the way the processing powers that I am using to accomplish it are the same processing powers that I, I use for um, you know science or math type things, which I, I am very good at. Okay. And that happened for quite a while. Okay. So um, I'm 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 used to it. It's it's an intellectual challenge for me. Okay. Intellectual challenge is not something that bothers Ash terribly much. <laughs> I think that we've seen lately that it seems to be effective. Yes, it has been effective. And so even if it's a little more work, having a little more result is certainly worth that amount of work. Yeah. Yeah. So, so anyway, when oh sorry. Oh, back to ninth grade and the complete wheels falling off of all social interaction at school and Ash's subsequent breakdown. Uh, when we noticed that Ash was cutting himself, we figured Ash needed some help. And somewhere in this, Ash had also given us the news that Ash did not believe he was actually a man after getting the therapist. Anyway, uh, we brought Ash to to a doctor, his pediatrician, and his pediatrician recommended we go to some therapists that he was associated with. And it was around about that time. Yeah, I, I, I met a psychopharmacologist and a, and a, a therapist. Yes. But it was about that time that Ash gave us the... Yes, it was after I had start seeing, started seeing the therapist. I, I, that doesn't fit with my recollection, really? but I do believe you. Really? I, okay. I recollect that being beforehand. Okay. And I recollect me trying to say to both the doctor and to the therapists, you know, you might hear something about discomfort with gender, but I would like you please to address the fact that Ash is injuring himself and is at this point seemingly having hallucinations. And we would like to have those addressed immediately, first and foremost. Yeah. And that didn't really happen. That didn't really happen. One of the things that the therapist said was, first, you need to know where all the knives are in your house. You need, he, need, he needs to be safe. You know, so Ash was sort of on suicide watch at that point. And while Ash was on suicide watch, uh, the therapist told Ash to, you know, filter out of the house and go down to a trans support meeting. Yes. Behind our backs. Yes. Why did the therapist recommend that? How did you uh, perceive them uh, suggesting that to you or uh, diagnosing that for you? How did that come into the picture? Yeah, I was there. So, yeah, I we had been talking about, I, I, you know, one... So there was this interesting progression because the, the first time I talked about gender stuff with, with my that the therapist I had at the time, 
Um, I, I said something along the lines of, like, I do not like being a boy, and I really wish that I could walk down the street and have people not think I'm a boy. And then, you know, a few meetings later, you know, we, we returned to that, and it sort of stayed the same. And uh, my, my therapist's re response to that was, you know, something something along the, li the lines of, do you, do you think you're trans? Which I don't think is an inappropriate response. But, you know, eventually I came to my therapist and I said, I think I'm trans. I think I'm actually supposed to be a woman. Um, and, and did you did you do research into that? Like you had researched yes. other... I did. I do research into everything. Yeah. Um, if, if I do not say I did research into something, assume I did research into it. Okay. Um, because there was this sort of switch in my brain that, that told me that if I'm not comfortable, if I do not feel properly like a boy, if not boy, then girl. Did we mention black and white thinking is a fairly that, that's common, a very attribute, common attribute of an autistic person? Yeah. But uh, but full 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 throttle black and white. If not this, then it has to be that. And in in what way did the your research um, make that salient to you? Make transgender. How did how did the transgender identity for yourself? How did you construct that? And how did that seem like a solution? Um. Well, there. I think one of the big parts was reading about sort of the treatments and hormones and stuff. The, the biggest thing that really attracted, that made me attracted to it was um, it, taking estrogen would cause, you know, facial hair and body hair to thin. Okay. And one of the things I've been struggling with since I did started growing body and facial hair is having body and facial hair because it's a very unpleasant sensory experience for me. Um. And I hate the way it looks, I hate the way it feels, and I hate the fact that if I want it to go away, I have to shave it. But that's just life. That That isn't, I, I, saw, I, I saw that at the time as a manifestation of, of gender, um, but I, I realize now that it's just something I do not like that isn't a gendered thing. There are many physical sensations that Ash is averse to. Uh, Ash does not like to sweat. Ash does not like to exercise. Ash does not like to wear clothes that are not chinos and button-down shirts. <laughs> Ash does not like people touching him accidentally or on purpose. Well, it's usually better if it's on purpose. Because... With certain exceptions. But, oh, I'm not going to tease Ash. Okay. Now, so in the context of this... Again, looking forward, looking backwards, if we look backwards from the diagnosis of autism, we can see that the peculiar fact that Ash insisted on wearing only chinos as trousers from the age of five, yes, yeah. uh, had something to do with I just realized that. the sensory peculiarities. Oh. Ash did not like the feeling of, of wind on his legs, yeah. and wearing chinos every day prevented that. The belt... The certain waistband feeling was something that Ash liked. Ash always hated wearing jeans, still hates wearing jeans. There are many issues like this. And so the body hair, in seen in the context of all of those 
sensory issues and problems of, of sensation is perfectly comprehensible. So, and also in investigating the transgender uh, identity, did you construct um, the thought that having a woman's body would uh, solve other issues? Or did you want to become a woman? Or was it more about just mitigating the aspects of boyhood? Yeah, it was it was all it was all about um, mitigating the, the aspects of boyhood, really, I, I didn't want to have, you know, facial or body hair. I didn't want to be treated socially like a boy. Um, I didn't want to be you know, feel like I'm the victim of, you know, what, you know, at the time I, I looked around and, you know, even in ninth grade, I saw a lot of like anti-men stuff that I actually agreed with because boys had been so terrible to me. And so I didn't want to be that. Um, I think that was, that was another part of it. And um, to get back to the wheels coming off a uh, bit and all of a sudden, well, going from a state for those glorious four months, being embedded in a community that accepts you and uh, embraces you, and then all of a sudden they're, they're, you're, you're out of that. How did you process that? Were you capable of understanding, uh, like piecing that together like a puzzle or uh, kind of doing some detective work? No, I was going to interrupt and say, no, no. no. Um, that took me years. Um, yes. Okay. I literally just figured it out like last week. What What did you figure out? Like the um, sequence I, of events? I, or? I figured out that the problem was that this young woman had a massive crush and and you know made sexual you know advances and i was like hey i do not feel comfortable with this because this is that's what you're supposed to say and then she got you know very angry for for whatever reason i don't think men are allowed to say that Hmm. uh women are supposed to say that and men are supposed to respect it but when it's the other way around maybe not so much in in any case and and the reason i realized that is because this past year my best you know, my best, my school context, my, in the context of school, my best friend, oh, uh, another girl, um, recently, you know, stopped talking to me and then I, you know, texted her and then she said a lot of mean things to me like, oh, you've been manipulative and abusive in our relationship. And I was like, whoa, there was no relationship. There was a relationship? There was a relationship. And now that I'm thinking about it, I literally have like a letter she sent me that starts off with, my dearest Ash. And it turns out... (laughs) One doesn't say that. It turned... And and like the thing is that I had asked her, do you have a crush on me? Multiple times. She said no. It never occurred to me that she would lie. And so back to this (laughs) metaphor... This does not have a crush on me went on her D and D character sheet, <laughs> which did you, not change. You don't know that you don't understand that when they say no, it, it's not black and white in certain exactly. contexts. You're getting it now, and Ash is now mm. getting it, which is very okay. helpful. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, um, 
you're experiencing uh, auditory and visual hallucinations. You do well. You go to a therapist. Um, somehow, the idea of the transgender identity gets involved, and then you come out to your parents. And how do the, the parents respond? And the therapist wants him down at children's the, gender service. Yeah, right away. And yeah. we say, "Whoa, whoa, whoa." This is a child literally and demonstrably not in his right mind. <laughs> Why would you say that? It's so fucking obvious. Excuse my language. Um, yeah. So bleep that later. My my parents just said no. You just said no. No. Said no. Said no. No, no, no way. No, you want to tell us you're gay, you want to tell us you're bi, we're like, fine, sure. Believable. I mean, yeah, I came but, out as bi, and that was fine. We're like, okay, fine. Uh, so but, what? You know, um, we're like, no, there is, there's no way, shape, or form in which you are actually a girl inside. That's nonsensical. And I just want to say, Dad, that was the right thing to do. Thank you, Ed. Because that bought me some time to figure my shit out. It was okay. quite stressful. Okay, so you felt or you were put on a fast track towards affirming yes. this identity by the professionals. They tried. they tried, but I, like a mule, put my hooves down and refused. Okay. okay. In fact, I remember one remarkable time when your, your pediatrician wanted very much for you to go to the gender service clinic. And I went up one side and down the other of this pediatrician. And then he quit. Said, and then he quit. Which I consider a victory, in my words to this doctor, I brought my son to you when he was hurting himself because I wanted him to stop, not because I wanted a professional to do it. Yeah, I, I think that what the, you know these health professionals thought is that the origin of my distress was this tr this possible trans identity. I will interject and say, it might not even be what they thought, so much really? as what they were required to think. Huh. Because in our state, it is illegal to provide any form of therapy to a putatively trans child that is not affirmative. Oh yeah, I forgot about That's that. All, it's all considered conversion therapy if you don't accept. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Even though the... Uh, I guess the benchmark for assessing transgender, a transgender individual is uh, incredibly <laughs> paleolithic compared to the autistic research that we have. Or, yeah. Okay. And the autistic and the autism research we have is not that great. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. So how did the, um, how did the hallucinations and that psychotic break resolve what steps did you take to, to come back down to? I saw a new therapist. <laughs> yes, once once the old therapist became pushy with this trans nonsense, I, 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 saw, I said hey, we'll have to uh, yeah, we'll have to move on. The, okay. My dad did a whole lot of research yes, into did. the best place to bring your kid who is mentally ill. And he found our, our you know the, this specialized center locally. Um and you know, I started going there, and I started working with a therapist who's specifically trained in cognitive behavioral therapy. Behavior, behavioral. That's the yeah, word. Yeah, you got it. 
CBT. Just say CBT. CBT. And um, how did that help? It sort of gave me a framework to logically understand emotions. Okay. Um, I remember like one of the first things he did is he gave me a sheet. And what the sheet said on it is that on one column, it had the names of emotions. The next column, it had what these emotions are telling you. And then the third column was like what these emotions come from. So for for sadness, it's like, you know, you know, it said sadness. And then what it's telling you to do is, you know, make up for something that has been lost. And the reason you're feeling it is because there's some perception of something has been lost, you know, that that sort of thing. Hmm. And you might know or you might not know that it's very common for autistic people, especially autistic children, to have a great difficulty not only interpreting the emotions of others, but in interpreting their own emotions. Again, not a sort of thing that unless you were trained in in therapy and in the proper kinds of therapy, you would know about. But this sort of uh, sheet or explanation that uh, Ash's therapist provided to him I, I do remember Ash coming home with these and saying, look at this. This explains it all. Yeah. <laughs> because, like, up, up to then, like, my understanding of sadness is sometimes people cry. And that's not me exaggerating. That That's literally the extent to which I understood sadness. Mouth turned down is sad. Yes. Blue. And, so when when you are feeling sad, then... Your only explanation is this happens, sir. I, I didn't know I was. I didn't have a word for that. I just felt bad. That's how I could explain it. Okay, okay. And so CBT uh, started to allow you to organize your internal life. Yeah, and it and it helped me understand other people as well, because now I know why emotions happen. Um, and what people oftentimes do in response to their emotions and how emotions change over time, hmm. which is something that I'm still working on fully putting <laughs> into practice. Um, but, so you know, but understanding all of this through a very logical, conscious lens. Um, which also, is really the only way that Ash could understand all yeah. of this. Okay. Um, yeah, it's really about the interaction of emotions with, with, you know, logical thinking. Okay. Does music um, help you interface between cognition with all these, uh, you know, all these beats in a certain time, but there's still emotion there? Do you feel the, uh, the syncing up of your emotional and your intellectual self? And yes, I, I think music and, and art in general um, has been the for a while was the only way I had I knew how to express my emotions um, because I didn't understand them and they felt very very complex and so I had to represent that and I didn't have the words for it but I could translate it into you know music or or drawing or something I have audiovisual synesthesia which is um, 
I think, somehow related to that connection there. Could you describe uh, audio-video uh, visual synesthesia? When I see things, I hear them. And when I hear things, I see them. Um, I think that's the, the simplest way to put things. So basically what that is, is that um, it happens in you know a handful of ways. Um, with words, I will see very specific images for each word. If I hear the word off, I see a picture of a light switch. If you know somebody says, I forgot something, I will see a picture of an ambulance. When I hear music, though, I will see shapes and colors. And those shapes and colors in my head will be moving, and they'll look different depending on what part of the music I'm focusing on. And then when I go to the art museum and I look at a Jackson Pollock painting, I can write a piece or say, hey, this piece sounds like what this painting looks like. Yeah. yeah. So under, um, perhaps under the tremendous amount of stress that you were experiencing in uh, ninth grade when the wheels came off, as we say, you were, there was so much stuff that you weren't able to process that you were hearing and seeing things kind of like other people would have an internal monologue of talking to themselves. Yeah. Um, I also had a very rich internal monologue and, and still do. Um, but it was just so much going on that I was really overwhelmed almost all the time. So when did the, um, trans, how did the transgender, uh, thing it, it itself kind of go away or you, uh, decide against it and so, go on to something else? Um, it took a long time. It's it's complicated. <laughs> um, and I'm trying to figure out how to explain the complicated nature without just being like, and it's this one thing, because it's a lot of things. Um, I think that the first thing that comes to mind is that, you know, after, you know, my parents were very vehemently opposed to me, uh, you know, going through this medicalization, um, I, you know, then, you know, got to this new therapist and, you know, I shifted all of my, my focus on, you know, improving myself or figuring myself out onto my work with this new therapist. And so my, you know, the, this, this trans stuff really stagnated. Um, then until I went to camp, uh, a summer camp, you know, an arts camp. And there, you know, I, you know, was in a class and we were sitting in a circle. And we were going around and the teacher was like, Okay, everybody, say your name, your pronouns, and your favorite type of ice cream, like something like that. And so it came to me, and I was like, whoa, I'm not ready to answer this question. Like <laughs> ice cream, you're so invasive. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, my, my name's Ash, and my pronouns are... And then I have like a little mini panic attack inside my head because this is the first time I had actually thought about um, this sort of stuff for a while, which and is then, what demonstrates how wonderful it is to put this on kids at summer camp. And then, and then, and then I said, um, "They them." Um, mm. And then I said, um, yeah. uh, "Cookies and cream for my favorite ice cream flavor." But now you're letting out all your secrets. Well, it's it's different now. It changes. Okay. It changes. Yeah. Amazing. There are so many ice cream flavors that are so good, and it's hard so to choose. So after, after the I am certain that I am a girl in a boy's body phase started to wane a little bit, we had a bit of 
I am an androgynous envy person, and you must call me they or I will get peeved. Yeah, yeah. So that that summer, you know, people called and referred to me as they, and I was like, wow, this is lovely. People are, um, you know, not really treating me like a boy in the way I had been, you know, treated in other contexts. And, you know, at the summer camp was very, very, everybody was super nice and super, I hate using the word inclusive, but inclusive is the correct word. Um of, you know, everybody, you know, no matter what. And, you know, that, that was, you know, I I said these, you know, that the, they should refer to me this way. And so they did. And that was very lovely. Um, and then, you know, I, I came to my parents. Um, wait. No, and then, then I had another year of high school. Yeah. And then at, at high school, I didn't really tell anybody about that. Um because I was afraid that they would react negatively because they, they weren't as nice, my, my classmates, as the, the kids I knew at, at, at camp. So then again, there again, it sort of took a back burner. Mm-hmm. But this NB identity, this androgynous they, them, did, what was that like? Was that, It sounds like it, was, uh, it relieved you of a certain amount of stress. It did. It relieved me of a lot of stuff. It was... I, I, re- I was really attracted to it, and I, I still am really attracted to it because of it's sort of like, um, for, for me at least, it's not boy, and if you want me to explain further, fuck you. No, I don't think we're supposed to use those words. No, that, that's fine. We're, we're out of the intro. The, um, so to help me understand this, it... it it insulates you um, from people uh, invasively projecting expectations. And yes. also it relieves you of all the expectations you have in your head of the category boy. And so, you know, I, you know, at that point, you know, I, I dressed, you know, very, very. Um, plainly? Relatively plainly. Yeah. Um, and then I started feeling comfortable to you know, experiment with like getting my nails painted and, you know, wearing earrings. And, and, and we, I, I will have to say that we, as Ash's parents, did our part. One of my, uh, uh, I guess, points of argument for, for Ash regarding Ash's discomfort was the idea that perhaps Ash was most uncomfortable with the idea of being uh, a man like myself, very plainly dressed and relatively masculine, and perhaps yes. Ash, perhaps Ash wanted to be more fabulous than I am. I am not the least bit fabulous, and so we took Ash to, you know, gay vacation spots, and we took Ash to fancy gay men's clothing b- boutiques, oh, yeah, and bought great. Ash some very fabulous clothes that I would be unlikely to wear. Yes, which I wear on a regular basis. And Ash was very happy with this. Um, yeah, and we also got my ears pierced. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, I think perhaps part of the misconception is that you think you have to be drab as a man, as I am rather drab. And I said, that's not true at all. I think maybe your discomfort with being a man has something to do with you not having met sufficiently fabulous men. Yeah, I, I don't think I'm... So I think a lot of it had to do with, with homophobia and not meeting a lot of gay guys or, or bi guys um, because at school 
every school I went to, you know, you know, in middle school, super duper homophobic. So even if you were gay or bi, you were afraid to say it out loud because they would, you know, throw rocks at you figuratively and sometimes literally um, only off campus, though. Um, and then in, in high school, I was the only um, not straight boy who was open that, about it that you knew of that that I knew of that was open about it. And so that was sort of really lonely in a way. Um, but, you know, we, we, you know, went to some gay vacation spots and I'm like, Hey, <laughs> Hey, that's the right word. Right. Yeah. How does, uh, speaking of the sensory, um, topic that we're talking about how does colorful clothing and what your father calls the fabulous what does that make you feel like how does that um how does that interact with who you are and who you think yourself to be well it makes me feel cool like like as in as in wow you're like i think of like my younger self would look at me and i'm like you're so cool um so there's there's a bit there's there's a lot of joy in that there um, I think also I have a very sort of colorful brain, I guess, um, because I see a lot of colors, more colors than a lot of people do um, in different contexts and stuff. And so when I look at, at people and what they wear, I have a very different experience of that. And so what I wear not only looks good to me, but also sounds good. Um, referring to the audiovisual synesthesia, and so also, you're like a piece of music walking down the street. I, yeah, it is. I'm I I am a piece of art, and I think yeah. I I like that, and I've always had appreciation for art. And who who says that I can't be a piece of art? And I like that, and I get compliments on it, and that's great. Mm-hmm. So having all these. Uh, the autism diagnosis has helped you conceptualize a lot of things and then start to formulate plans of uh, competency of, of these other difficulties things how what do you want to be who do you want to who do you want to be what do you want to do in the world um i want to help people um i've, I've always really liked helping people um, you know, in, in middle school, I, I, you know, didn't like the cafeteria. So I started eating lunch in the nurse's office. And the next thing I n- know, I'm out on errands for the nurses, you know, carrying people in wheelchairs who had fainted up and down the stairs and things like that. And I really enjoyed that. And the people I met who also did that were some of the nicest people I met. You know, I have a, I have a card on my wall from them wishing me well after I left. And, um, that, that has always made me really happy. And, you know, when, when people, I remember in 10th grade, I I had a good friend, um, who was a girl who had a boyfriend, which was very nice because she never like freaked out on me or anything. You know, we, we had a mutually beneficial relationship where I would help her with, you know, math and, and, um, you know, writing and stuff. And she would help me with social situations. And that was I benefited from that, you know, both because she explained to me, hey, don't do this stupid thing, but also I was helping somebody and there was something very fulfilling in that. This past year, I've I've been very interested in sort of 
trying to make things better for for uh, autistic people um, because you know there's lots of if you do your research into autism you know there's a lot of worrying things we know you know the whole anti-vaxxer thing connection with autism and you know lots of icky stuff and so like there's a part of me which is just like i need to correct these people's logic and also i meet really awesome people along the way okay and i get my own needs met by helping others meet their needs so taking that what are some of the resources that well okay there's two questions one is what are resources that need to be there that aren't for autism what resources are there for autistic people but just to make it a little bit more personal what advice do you have for people who might be autistic or who are having uh, some of these uh, some similar issues or some similar questions whether they're parents or, or children what advice do you have um, for you know, thinking through their problems and, and coming to understand themselves if they feel like they're neurodivergent, if that's the correct term. Yes. Um, so the first thing you need to do, if you think you if you think you are autistic or you think you have ADD, um, people are like, oh, well, I'm afraid to get diagnosed because then people will treat me differently. You don't need to disclose that you're autistic. You don't need to disclose that you have ADD. And nobody will know if you're good at hiding it. So the what 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 the first thing you should do is you should go to a specialist and you should get diagnosed because that opens up a lot of doors for you that you didn't even know existed. Um So that's the first thing you should do. For example, if your therapist knows that you're autistic, your therapist might think Maybe the the etiology of this problem has to do with an inability to understand his own emotions. Let's go back to this sort of thing that somebody who's not autistic would have learned as a young child and work our way back up. Mm-hmm. If if your therapist does not know you're autistic, he's unlikely to ever go there. Yes. And there's also schools are you know, public schools and in schools in general are you know to certain varying degrees required to to accommodate you um, if you you have a diagnosis and you have difficult difficulty with you know a certain element of school and that can be very very helpful. I didn't take full advantage of that and I regret that greatly. Um, so I also think that. Once you get a diagnosis, you know, there's you're not hesitant about knowing, you know, what's going on inside yourself and, you know, understanding your your internal life. And then you can connect with um, you can go around life and you will happen upon other people who have these traits and you can ask them, hey, do do you I I don't mean this as an insult, but do do you know if you, you happen to be autistic? And I remember the first person, uh, the autistic, the first autistic person I met um, after getting diagnosed. Um, I don't know how to tell this. Should I tell this story? What's, um, what's the person's name? Um, what's it start with? An N. I don't know who that is. I almost got kicked out of school for it. For doing what? The, like the first week of, of um, college. Yeah? For asking someone if that person no, was autistic? No, no, no. 
for oh for, indeed yeah no you shouldn't tell okay. that story okay okay, okay. Gotcha. <laughs> so the, the, there are still dangers w with regards to social interactions that, uh, that perhaps. That's, no, it's it's more about you can find a community of people who are accepting and who can understand you. And you have this baseline connection where like you, you, you just talk to them and you're like, I get you and you, you get me to because you think in very similar ways. Well, uh, Let's just say that Ash met someone early in college uh, who was autistic and had uh, a certain level of rational exuberance over this companionship that was problematic in the age of COVID. Yes. And leave it at that. But I'll say <laughs> that one of the things that might be nice if colleges could do, and I observed this from the case of Ash attending college, is identify students who are incoming who are autistic and make sure that they reach out. Yes. Because the autistic students will not do this. Yes. And the reason I say that this is important is that autistic people are far less likely to finish college or to be employed than yes. people who are not autistic. Yes. Far less likely, even high functioning autistic people. Yes. And all of the confusions and complications with a new social, you know, area, new social milieu can be completely overwhelming for an autistic person. And I think if an autistic person can be better incorporated into the the society of a college and into the function and rules of a college, that autistic person is much more likely to succeed and, and can perhaps go on to, to achieve great things. And I think it, it is incumbent on colleges to notice that they make accommodations and they reach out to people for any number of reasons. And one reason almost none of them do this is because students are autistic. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. But also, that would be, I, I'm just saying that that's a good thing that, that, that they probably need to have a whole department to understand just from it, the data they get from their students to. I think that. every college needs, at, if, if, if you're a college and you have, hundreds of at least hundreds of students you need at least one person dedicated to neurodivergent issues and you know that might sound radical but it really isn't um because neurodivergent people have unique issues which unless you have a specific area of knowledge or neurodivergent yourself you won't understand and they're not uncommon they are not uncommon right uh two percent I think of the U.S. population is autistic. Is it? Yes. That's quite a lot. It is. Um, that that's just autistic people. Then you know, compound that with people with ADD, OCD, etc. If we just reduce it, talking about autistic people, there are of course different types or gradations. There are some autistic people who are very unlikely to be going to college. Yeah, I I, I sort of am. Get sort of wary of talking about gradations and, and functioning in, in autism, but that's a, a separate topic that I don't want to get into. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that, just, that sounds pretty complex. I just want to say that I don't think it is proper to say high functioning autistic or low functioning autistic. I think it has more to do with how an autistic person is raised. Okay. All right. So, any advice for parents, Raphael? 
about uh... uh yeah put your foot down yes in what way <laughs> put your foot down if your doctors are trying to tell you and your son's doctors and your son's therapists are trying to tell you that your son is transgender what would they know they've known your kid for five minutes now you've known your kid their entire life nobody nobody has as much knowledge of your child as you do as a parent. I believe that some people, when they grow up, are going to live their best lives as transgender people. I know people who are doing this, I do. But I also know that there is no way to tell who these people are when they are children. Yes. No way. And so for that, that reason, I want to say that the phrase transgender children really has no place. It is children who may or may not turn out to be transgender. But you know what? Let's put the children first, not the transgender. Hmm. Also, you need to talk about, um, I want to use gay as an umbrella term, but gay kids. Because being a gay kid nowadays um, umbrella it's, term. It's honestly, hard. honestly, I think it's worse than when I was a it's kid. It's really hard. Um, I do. The, just the amount of homophobia that I've experienced, and I, I don't want to like put myself up as a murder, but you know, it's it's just you know, me and a lot of my not straight friends get a lot of you know homophobic slurs, or you know, I'm sure there's a lot of bullying that I don't even notice. Probably. Um. But people are just mean about it. Um, yeah. And, I, of course, these two issues do intersect to some extent. I know it is a fact that a lot of children who believe they might be transgender, if they are allowed to grow up and go through puberty and become adults, uh, they will end up being gay. And a lot of what is mistaken or radiology. Well... I would say that until a child has reached the point of actually experiencing sexual desire for another person, you cannot properly classify that person as gay, straight, or bisexual. And that is something that happens after puberty. Really? Yes. Huh. Did you feel sexual attraction to someone else before puberty? Yes. I didn't know I've that. I've had crushes on... Well, Crush is a different thing. That's an emotional attraction. Yeah, I, I had, I had, I mean, I had sexual attraction at least since the age of ten. Well, we have to remember, Ash, that you did go through puberty very early, and yeah. you may have already been starting puberty at ten. Yeah, I mean, my voice dropped in sixth grade, and I was like, "Ooh." Ash, <laughs> Ash was a base in at, 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 in sixth grade, yeah. but. I, perhaps I'm projecting too much because I actually went through puberty late you and I projecting. did not experience any sexual yeah. attraction to anybody until I was 15. Yeah, so I, I think that this past year is probably the year I've met the most kids in, you know, different points of the, like, the transgender lake. We'll call it a lake. Why not? Hmm. Um uh, Yeah, I, I went to, you know, a local... Um, college liberal arts early college program yeah one of our and local universities has a special program to accept uh students earlier than yeah. they would normally go to college so and our ash is very talented with mathematics 
Um, so, I, so I went, you know, two years early and I met a lot of other smart pe- kids and um, a lot, like so many of them were autistic. Um, also, almost all the autistic kids were at some sort of, to some degree, had issues with gender. Um, gender issues, I think you may have heard, uh, tend to fall very heavily on autistic children. Yeah. Um, Why do you think that is, Ash? I think we've explored it, but can you make it more explicit? So, I... Social standards are stupid. Um, Social expectations are stupid from an autistic point of view. We don't understand them very well. And things we don't understand we think are stupid. Um, I think that's a pretty universal experience. (laughs) I think it's pretty universal that young autistic boys are unable to act in the way that boys are assumed to act. Also, we... Autistic people act generally androgynously. Um, for for boys, because most autistic people have troubles with physical sensations, we do not like rough and tumble play. And, you know, we have very large emotions um, that we can't do anything about. Um, so, you know, boys are, are mean to each other. And, you know, not necessarily in a bad way. And, you know, they rough and tumble. And so boys will you know, be re- autistic boys will be repulsed by that. And so because now you're hanging out with girls and you're sort of trying to differentiate yourself from this group of boys, th- that's, that can look like being trained, you know, and that's kids. a very specific analysis of your individual situation. I could probably take a step back and give a, a higher view of Go it. Go for it. And I would say that Ash is completely correct in that, Assumed gender roles are are more difficult for autistic people to pick up on, just like all assumptions are more difficult for autistic people to pick up on. So Ash is correct in saying that boys and girls are more likely to grow up being not fitting gender roles perfectly well. I would point out that most autistic children grow up with a pervasive sense of not belonging or of something being wrong. Yes. And right now we're at a moment in our society when the answer for something being wrong when you're young that is first given it seems is trans if you were to go to the internet and google i don't feel like i fit in what is wrong with me i guarantee you your trans would be in one of the top 10 results it is <laughs> yeah i think another thing is that autistic kids um prioritize you in specifically the way we dress we prioritize what things feel like over what people say we should wear. So, you know, for, for, I know that a lot of, you know, you know, female autistic people, they, they don't wear makeup like society tells them they should. Or, oh, um, they probably find it because, because it's, it's, you know, feels weird. Um, you know, there are autistic people who wear the same hoodie every single day because that's what feels safe. And and so these these the things that feel nice <laughs> tend to be androgynous. Sure. And you'll have somebody who comes up to a teenage girl who is wearing a hoodie and no makeup and say, "Golly, you look like you're trans." <laughs> they really yeah. will. Yeah, they will. They will. Hmm. It's uh, it's just part of it is 
most of it really is the moment we're living in, and I, I do hope that this moment will pass. I don't know. That's all I thought we were Yeah, the... But back we, to the difficulty so. of growing up gay, I really, honestly, and I'm a kid who grew up in the 70s, and I grew up in some small towns, some you're small, some, some small mean towns, okay? And, you know, nobody wanted to treat gay people particularly nicely either then, but I honestly think it is worse now. You know, Ash got called a faggot or a girl also, every single day of middle school. Also, there there have been a bunch of studies replicating the fact that around 70% of autistic uh, people identify as either lesbian, gay, or bisexual. That I didn't know. Um, which is fascinating. Which is far more than the overall society. Is far more. And, and so... There's sort of a level of gender nonconformity usually inherent in being not straight. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So where where to now then? I I think we we, we've kind of cased out what you want to do with your life, but I guess where are you now with uh, I guess everything that is your issue? Uh, which is multifaceted and I, I guess what what it looks like now is that you know I'm going to you know a different you know more specialized college now um, and you know it's really about everywhere I go I want to help people and I know that the way I can best help people is by helping people understand autistic people and directly helping autistic people and that will, by helping autistic people, I do believe that will help the, the problems that our society sees with gender. Um, That's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. Because oftentimes to solve a, a problem, you know, attacking it head on is, is not the, the best idea. Um, I live in America, so I know that very well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so... Yeah, and and what that looks like is really dependent on the situation. It it seems like I, I've had um, I've had a difficult time understanding the non-binary uh, phenomenon. Speaking with you makes it make a lot more sense to me. What I'm seeing is that it's kind of the same thing uh, that in my generation was the goth or the emo uh, kind of bubble. No. It, it, no. Just let, let me specify this. Okay. There's an aspect of it that is a fad and that's cool. Yes. There's also an aspect of it that makes people such as you, or, or in your case, it it enables you to gain distance from things and, and to protect yourself that I hadn't seen before. I thought it was just a cool thing. And because of the medicalization that's, that's being infused into it, it's actually kind of dangerous to just let this they themness go unchecked because that will lead to people wanting to modify their body more than they need to, because there's not a lot of thinking through what this, uh, what the societal, uh, kind of fad is, uh, covering up other uh, kind of issues that people have with themselves and their development. So I, I, I think that you're going in the right direction here. 
um, from my point of view. Um, so lead me, lead me to the lake. So <laughs> don't lead them to that lake. About seventy percent of like non-binary people, about thirty percent of non-binary people, um, are what are known, what are known to in, in sort of you know the LGBTQ community, uh, which is different than the LGB community, mm-hmm. um, as trans medicalists. And most of what, you know, we and, you know, this are, uh, you know, actually yeah. critically thinking about gender stuff are talking about are, are the trans medicalists. These are, these are the people who are pushing to medicalize kids and say that, you know, to be trans, you, you, you have to, uh, you know, med- medicalize. And they're uh, about 70 percent of um, non-binary people in, in my generation are non-binary and we accept our bodies the way they are and it is a way to be gender non-conforming in the modern age because back in the in the day from what i've heard you could be gender non-conforming and people were cool with that you can't do that anymore it's true actually you can't do that anymore look at any advertisement if i i remember being a kid watching like cartoon network and seeing the advertisements, I could I could tell you. Oh my word! This is for girls. This is for boys. This is for girls. This is for boys. We had that brief period in our society, sometime from the seventies into the eighties, where well, the nineties were cool too. They they took away the boys and girls toys aisle, and all the toys were for all the kids because you were free to be you and me. Those days are gone, and it's it's rather sad when you say goth. And uh, emo, I want to say those people seem to go to quite a lot of trouble to put different sorts of things all over themselves. They still exist. They still exist. And I would like to say that I know I'm a lot older than you are, Benjamin. But (laughs) back in my day, there was a phenomenon that you might have heard of called the preppy. I think it might mean something different now. But in my day, preppy boys and preppy girls dressed pretty much exactly the same. Yeah, blazers, uh, square shoulders. Button downs. Blazers, chinos, button downs. And in a way, when you look back on it, wasn't that a bit androgynous? You know, it led to the phenomenon that I know uh, I'm probably not allowed to name, not being a charter member of the LGB community, but the phenomenon of the J. Crew Dyke. You would get canceled so fast. I would get canceled fast. Yeah, in my in my defense, I've always had a lot of female friends, and most of them have been lesbians. Some of them have indeed been very proud J. Crew Dykes. <laughs> so the phenomena you mentioned, Ash, that there's the LGB community and then the TQ community. Where do you think going? What what's that cue? Is that cue problematic to you, or is it just a necessary aspect of of the cultural moment? There there are, there are three parts. There are three parts. There, <laughs> it's it's complicated. Oh, it's nuanced. Your jazz hands. Your your um, answer is different. Than mine. It's lesbian, gay, and bisexual. These are just people who are sexually attracted to a specific sex, and they are happy with that, and that's their thing. There's the T which is the trans medicalists, the people, uh, you know, people who are like, 
I'm a girl, even though I'm in a boy's body, and we're going to change everything to make me look as much like a girl or whatever. The cue is complicated. Um, it's sort of the wild card. It's everybody who doesn't fit in the, the, the first two categories. Uh, but still wants to be part of it. Still wants to be part of it. Um, a lot of non-binary people, a lot of, you know, when you hear these sort of more exotic words like pansexual or demisexual and stuff like that, that's that's the cue. Is that where the lugs fit? What? The lugs. Like lug nuts? No, or? you know, lesbian until graduation? Yes. Yes. Um... <laughs> That sounds really offensive, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah, so, so, and the, and the, well, I'm just trying to point out a certain phenomenon that I think you're familiar with, that there is a certain, or has been for a long time, a certain uh, social cachet in a girl who is not actually a lesbian claiming to be a lesbian. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was around in in my day in the in the nineties and during the college times. Effectively, I'm, I'm not personally affected by that. Yes. Um, yeah. But the Q. So. Yeah. It, it it's it's an it's a social phenomenon. It's kind of like a fashion statement or just another layer of social interaction. This this it's Q. The, it's the rage against the machine. It's saying that. <laughs> It's it's saying that we are breaking the binary, which refers to men and, and women. That being a gender binary, um, mm. it's it's about a lot of it is very SJW like. Um, it, yeah, it like, sounds very political. Yeah, breaking heteronormativity and smash the patriarchy. Just just breaking stuff. And it doesn't really matter what you're breaking, as long as it has something to do with sex and gender. Um, they're not doing it in an intentional way whatsoever. Um, I think one should be careful of breaking things to do with sex and gender. Yes, yes. and Because people do end up broken. I think they are doing equal parts harm and good. Um, I think that there is good things to be done with breaking down, you know, what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman. I, I think those are loaded terms. But I also think that by sort of introducing this non-binary term, you're further adding sort of levels of granularity to people. So all Ooh. men who, you know, don't fit into what a man should be are non-binary. So you're mm. making the categories of man and woman, you know, more narrow, limited, more limited, not less limited. And, and so there's, there's a lot of self-defeating stuff in there. Um, but the fact is that for me, I, you know, for a while, you know, I've, I've realized that I can't really change the society's thinking, our society's thinking about gender and sexuality. I, I can't do that. Um, so I just have to do my best to live within that. And, it, and it's not, if, you know, I'm asked for my pronouns, I will say they, them. Because when somebody asks for my pronouns, I know that they're very likely close-minded and need that handicap to to think of me as not a stereotypical man that's a fascinating perspective that is yeah that that that's groundbreaking and and punches them in the nads at the same time i really like it um whatever those nads may be and we mustn't inquire and it's it's such a fun time to <laughs> to be very pleasant and nice about it 
because people are so used to having people who use you know they them pronouns or different pronouns from you know what they look like being really pissy about things I, I'm not pissy about it because that doesn't help anybody. And people are always like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. And it's well, hilarious. to be fair, you were pissy about it for a little while. I was while. pissy about it, but I have moved on from that. I'm so happy that you have. So I, there there was a phase of kind of uh, social justice warriorism yes. that you yes. went through. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. What was that about? And how did you lay down that particular sword? I it was it was um, equal parts sort of what was happening in my life and looking around and seeing sort of the inequalities. Okay. Um, because I had been treated poorly because I'm bisexual Different. and the way I you know autistic. carry myself because I'm autistic and stuff and I'm like not conforming. I have to rebel against this and you know. The way I, and of course I do research. How do I fight against you know these things? And what is is happening? What I see happening is the the sort of almost exclusively the 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 SJW type thing was like, well, if this is the way to do it, I'm going to do it right. And so from that perspective, I did it very well. But then I went to college and intro and was introduced to. A very, I think, extreme examples, you know, taking that to the extreme of how bad it can be. Um, because I remember, like, the first you know, week or so, I was talking to somebody who lived in my hall, a, a trans person who um, lived in my hall, and we were talking about communism. And I said that, well, communism has never worked. Every time it has happened, people have died or, you know, living situations. And then this person said, but what about racism? And I'm uh-huh. like, the fuck? And then that's an odd segue. And then and then I say, well that doesn't fix racism. And then they went around and told everybody that I was racist or some shit like that. And I didn't say anything racist, which is which is really confusing. And I guess saying that communism doesn't fix racism. Yeah, um, but because I was I was defending white colonialism. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. China's communist, and it's one of the most racist societies on the face of the planet. And homophobic. They have slaves. And stuff. Well, they're trying to exterminate all minorities right now. Yeah. That's pretty darn racist. It's so, very if I. Get you correctly, the social justice uh, atmosphere that you encountered in college was another rigid form of of complex social interaction with a very severe consequences if you don't conform right away and and and, and internalize all the thought patterns that yes. you don't necessarily find logical. Yes. So you can't even fit in there, and you're canceled. I, I think another part of it was that everybody was focused on two things they were focused on anti-blackness not racism but anti-blackness and transphobia those are the only two things anybody talked about right and so you know gay people lesbian people let's not talk about them people let's asian people let's not talk about them hispanic people let's not talk about them and right yeah And, and so and so i was like what the heck this is not okay 
And so then I started doing research online into, you know, what, what's wrong. And, um, you know, also, you know, like when I when I came to this this college that they handed me basically a list of things I wasn't allowed to say. And I'm still trying to find that list, and I and I do intend to publish it if I ever do find it. But I know you told me that kink shaming will get you thrown. Yeah, out. kink shaming will. So get if you somebody says out. I like for people to poo on me, and you say, "Oh, that's gross." Yeah, you can get you could get kicked out. Yeah, <laughs> which is so fucking stupid. <laughs> but people can call me retarded and not get kicked out. Um, but that's that's yeah, which happened. People can sexually assault me and not get kicked uh, out. Let's not go there. Um, yeah. So <laughs> okay. Um, I, I, I just saw this is another way of perpetuating inequality. Mm. They were, okay. they were perpetuating inequality and in calling it equity. Yes. Well, you know, some pigs are more equal than others. Yes. I, I read animal farm and I was like, this is what's happening. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so from your perspective, this inclusive, equitable, um, culture, was incredibly difficult to navigate and then uh, very in perpetuating inequality, as you say, how is it perpetuating inequality and why? And, and I guess that resolved why you had been kind of SJW ish or, or very socially activist and you kind of reformed how you want to still go about reforming society to make it better for everybody else. Yeah. So I think the one of the things I did is that I, I wondered, okay, you know, when when people say something bad, what are you doing with them? And you know, the the thing that people do is that they yell at them and they you know try to cancel them, really mean to them. And I, I've always been a really big believer in restorative justice because that's just logical and that has worked. We have you know empirical proof of this. Um, look at like Finland and their prison system. Um, you know, in, in high school, I, I worked, my high school is a small private high school. Um, I was on like a, like a judicial board or something. And that, that was a really formative experience for me. Hmm. Well, um, I think it's, it's time to wrap up this interview. It's one of the more fascinating conversations. And I, I, keep on saying that, but I keep on having awesome conversations. So I don't want to diminish this one, but this is my favorite among all my other favorite conversations. <laughs> well, thank you. But I have we, to say, I got a lot out of speaking with you guys. We have enjoyed listening to your other conversations as well. Yes. And uh, we're very happy to have been able to have a conversation with you today, Benjamin. Thank you. We appreciate your formulations and your insightful questions and they help us understand what we're talking about i really appreciate that you talk respectfully with people you disagree with it's all too rare i don't i don't even know i don't think in terms of agreement or disagreement i or i try not to as as i'm i'm trying to I go towards understanding or misunderstanding. That's the, in, in this work that we're participating right now, that's the metric, uh, not agreement, disagreement, which I think is a very flimsy way to understand people. Yeah. I wish more people would move towards understanding. Well, do you guys have any parting words to the audience? Any, any, uh, insights or aphorisms that, uh, that you want to get out there? Catchphrase. Um, Critical thinking is important. 
And you should be immediately very concerned if somebody says, you know, responds negatively to critical thinking or somebody's trying to shut that down because that's how society has progressed. And that is what is best for not just you, but everyone else. Um, what is critical thinking just for sake of, uh, our thinking is, is it, it, I think there's an element of, um, skepticism, everything you're presented with, you should do your own research. And when you do your research, when you find a source that says something, follow those citations. Because there is so much research out there that is absolute bullshit. And you you it's, it's you got to you got to learn how to research. You have to learn how to fact check. You have to learn how to follow citations so that you don't end up doing something which is wrong. Also take statistics. <laughs> oh, shit. Oh, man. I don't want to, though. But let's uh, put that out there. Take statistics. <laughs> read the book Lying with Statistics. That's uh, a great book. Who's that by? Do you recall? Who is that by? We've read that. We've we read have. That. Yeah. And I don't remember who wrote it. I forgot it. who wrote it. Okay, I, don't worry I, about it. I would recommend to you, if I were to recommend a book, I would say The Coddling of the American Mind. That's a good one. Is the best book about the current situation at colleges in America that I have ever read. And everybody who has a kid going to college or everybody who is going to college or everybody who's working at a college should read that book. Anti-fragility. Anti-fragility is what we need. Not also, coddling. The, the, one of the authors is a specialist in CBT. Yeah, Lukianov. Yeah. Do research in cognitive behavioral therapy. That's good. That has worked for a lot of people uh, with a lot of different uh, issues or problems. I think it is the superior form therapy. Well, it certainly worked well for you. And this makes sense. You know, we we went through a very difficult period in our relationship around the time yeah. when Ash was insisting that he was really a girl inside. I'm still very sorry about it's that. It's okay. You know, I love you. I loved you then. But I, it meant a lot to me to hear you say that I did the right thing by putting my heels down and saying no. Also, be nice to people you disagree with. Mm. Actually That's hear them out and think their arguments through. Because whenever somebody is saying something that's you know, an argument or that they truly believe, there is value in that. And that value might be an understanding why they're wrong. And that's okay. And being nice uh, facilitates. Yeah, being nice makes things better for everybody. Congratulations for reaching the end of the discussion. If you enjoyed it, do be sure to leave a review or a comment or a thumbs up or whatever you need to do to show that glorious algorithm that this is some good stuff. And do be sure to go and check that back catalog as it is brimming full of fantastic conversations. Links to provide monetary support are down there in the description as well. Have a good night.